Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to The Social Work Lens, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Today, we are bringing you part two of an incredible conversation between Janine Beaudry and Corey Best on child welfare with justice as the through line. If you missed episode one, now would be a great time to go back and listen to it. And if you're all caught up, get ready. Okay, before I hand it to Janine, we're going to play a short clip from Corey to bring you right in. Enjoy. I know this may not be the most popular thing, but uh, another white colleague of mine, uh, she says, you know, I'm so afraid of being called a racist. Well, you know, Janine, you personally can call me a name, but I can deal with that individually. But you put on a child welfare badge, you're bringing a whole institution with a lot of history of things behind that, right? We can leave the negative words out of our vocabulary. We can treat people nice, right? And we'll still have racist outcomes because if we don't do anything about the ideology, we'll continue to see the same outcomes. And what my colleague said, and and I I definitely call her a friend now, she says, you know, it, it took me a while to understand where my anger needed to be projected. And so when conversations got tough, my anger went to the person, not the ideology. And and it's not even about us, right? It's about this ideology. And she says what she started to do was figure out how she can stop being angry at black people for speaking the truth and start getting angry at racism for making her a racist. Wise words and a great way to center our attention throughout today's episode. How do we really listen without anger to the truth black people are speaking while focusing our anger on the ideology that causes so much harm? Racism. We'll get lots of practice today as Corey lays out the uncomfortable truth connecting the structure of today's child welfare system with the legacy of chattel slavery. How do we honor and strategize with the harmful impacts of this history to build a just child and family support system? So I'd like to welcome you back, Corey, to continuing the conversation that we started uh, around child welfare with justice as the through line. Welcome back today. And thanks for for joining me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I I really appreciated us uh, laying the foundation in our last conversation. And Janine, I am open to, to diving deep again. So thanks for having me back. It's absolutely my pleasure. So... Let's start where we left off in our last conversation with the 2020 census. 10.3% of people in Vermont live in poverty, and nationally, the poverty rate for the population as a whole is slightly higher than in Vermont at 11.6, but the rate varies greatly according to race. That would be no surprise to anybody, I think. Blacks have the highest rate of poverty at 19.5%. And non-Hispanic whites have the lowest at 8.1%. So the poverty rate for Blacks and Hispanics is more than double that of non-Hispanic whites. We've long discussed child welfare involvement, quote-unquote, disproportionately impacting Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, as well as people of any race who are experiencing poverty. Uh, Mining for Gold strategizes with history, right? So You often say that the past shapes our present. Um, Would you spend a few minutes contextualizing the design of our modern day child welfare system? Like how reproductive servitude during enslavement, apprenticeship, anti-blackness and racist child welfare policies are all a part of the system's architecture? Absolutely. Uh, Big, 
big question and it comes with a lot of spring loadedness right mm-hmm. uh, and what i'm saying is uh, again resma talks about decontextualized trauma in a community looks like culture decontextualized trauma in a family looks like family traits right decontextualized trauma in a person looks like behavior mm-hmm. and and so i, I appreciate you uh, bringing us back to to contextualizing these things because to the naked eye, if we continue to start with black poverty and not from enslavement, forced rapeability, right? Those things and, and denial of access to social systems up through. The 60s, right? You've already given us a timeline to look at. 1619, you began. We'll continue to, to think about racism in the context of only disproportionality and disparity. Same thing if we continue to start with the arrows of the Indians and not, right? And I said that because I'm quoting, right? And not with colonization, right? Who called these individuals what we know them to be or grew up knowing them to be, right? If we started, if we start from only the arrows of those individuals who were called Indians and then not from their indigenous lands, right? Not from colonization, not from Eurocentric, right? Domination, assimilation right? We, we won't have a full story. And there's no way to empathize if we don't have the full story. And so when you think about strategizing with history, right? Mining for gold recognizes that we must start with where things happen to groups of people and by whom and by what ideology, right? And so I mentioned Native Americans, and I mentioned blacks, black people specifically, because we we then look at the legacies, right? The legacies of family separation and what that has had on our systems. One thing that we can think about is Frederick Douglass. Everybody knows Frederick Douglass, right? He shares a story and memories of his mother, right? Visiting only. Uh, at night after being sold off. And so he's only met his mother four times before she died. The reason why she she visited at night is because she had no permission to leave the forced labor camp, a.k.a. plantation. These child welfare policies and spatial location are by design. One, we've always deemed, American society has deemed certain people inhuman, incapable. America has a peculiar relationship with black bodies, good for commodity, good for servitude, good for reproducing. And that legacy leads to carceral logic, right? This carceral logic is a compilation of practices, beliefs, and protocols, again, to punish those who deviate from whiteness. Now, when you think about the evolution of the modern-day child welfare system, 
We, we can start if we chose to at 1909, the White House Conference on Dependent Children, and then we can think about 1912, where the Children's Bureau was incepted, right? So the beginning of that. But when we look at the, in, the, the, the period of enslavement, chattel slavery, right? We utilize forced, uh, forced pregnancy, rape, slavability for racial capitalistic gains with enslaved individuals, right? You again mentioned 1619. So Virginia House of Burgess from 1619 through 1776, that date 1776 probably rings a bell for people, right? Yeah. Uh, that's when America formed its identity, right, as a, as a free country. And I won't go into all those details, but 1705 was the first slave code in Virginia, right? Also in the 1700s, we began to see laws change that that the child would cup would carry the mother's name. So why is this in, why is this important for us to think about when it comes to child welfare? One, it gave uh, white men uh, by law granted permission to enslave and, and rape black women, but also, right, they were able to enslave their own children, right, their mm -hmm. own children for, again, capitalistic gains. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about, when you think about child welfare, as we have come to understand it, we have a, we have a few policies that we have to, to think about when it comes to uh, mandated reporting, right? So that's 1963. And those laws, uh, those laws resulted in the surveillance of black, indigenous, Latina, Latinx, Latino families uh, turning their environments to, to family policing environments, right? And that's what some folks are calling it. In 2008, Dorothy Roberts wrote an article. Uh, she, she identified the profound effects of social relationships including interference with parental authority, damage to ch children's ability to form social relationships, and distrust amongst neighbors resulting from the government's intense surveillance. She also followed up in 2020 in, in writing, quote, the vast majority of child welfare investigations and removals involve allegations of neglect related to poverty and black families are targeted the most for state disruption as police don't make communities safe cps affirmatively harms children and their families while failing to address the structural causes for the hardships residents in black neighborhoods live in fear of state agents entering their homes interrogating them that is what uh, that is just one impact i'd say of a child welfare policy that we know as uh CAPTA, right? So CAPTA is where CPS lives. Hmm. And then we also have the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act of 1980, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act of 1994, known as MEPA. And, you know, research supports the idea that children's development and resilience are affected by transracial adoptions. And I'm not against transracial adoptions. I just believe that we have to look at the, the legacy of slavery and freeing beautiful black children up for adoption, right? 
And so this is this is also a, a mechanism to to do that because how is it, Janine, that black women were able to care for uh, the planters' family and children for hundreds of years while caring for their own, and then in our contemporary world, we have a message that black and brown families can't take care of their own children today. It's bizarre to me to think about it in that frame when I strategize with history. Hmm. And then we move into the other child welfare policy known as ASFA. Many of the listeners understand exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, we when we think about ASFA, that 15 to 22, many families have not gotten that. But it's a way, right? It's through this process of concurrent planning and encouraged by ASFA that Foster parents are told that their first obligation is to help reunify the family. But if by some chance they fail, right, they fail at that, then they get what they really want. And this is sort of the the word on the street, right? Mm. And so this is from the parents' perspective. And it's also written in, in an article, uh, the track record on safety and well-being that was published in 2018 by NNCPR. And, you know, one of the the hidden or least talked about policies is what was written in 1961, Janine, and that was the Fleming Rule. And so the Fleming Rule had really two provisions, the provision of service interventions to families that were declared as quote-unquote unsuitable, right? So this, the suitability clause. Now, everything that we've talked about thus far, Janine, has gotten us to understand, you know, spatial location, segregation, who's deemed human, who's not, how our ideas have led to disinvestments in black community, right? Hmm. Man, pretty clear picture there. And so if there's a disinvestment, right, a, a divesting from black communities or a disadvantage in black communities, then there must be an advantage in other communities. And so that's the privilege you talked about. But the suitability, it, it was to, to, to move the child to a suitable placement while continuing to provide financial support on behalf of the child. Now, caseworkers in, under, emphasized back then, right, as the racist ideologies of caseworkers about black families persisted, and perpetuated the outcomes for more black children to be uh, separated from their families. What we see based on a document that was written by the Juvenile Law Center in 2022, just last year, right? This Fleming rule required, you know, no uh, actual allegation or proof of of detriment to the child, right? It, it, It was only about moral behavior, right? So, so someone's view of the parent. Now, all of that, Janine, is sort of just a, a puzzle that can be pieced together as to how we are uh, practicing today in child welfare. And I, I'll, I'll go a little bit further, if I, if I may. Those are what we call at Mining for Gold the big six, right? And... The big six have not been extracted, right? And so we have not, um, I guess, excavated hmm. what they have done, right? We have not studied what they, uh, the impact, not only the outcomes, but the impact of those policies. And here we are uh, 
implementing mm-hmm. another federal policy of Families First Prevention Services Act. Now, mm-hmm. why do I say that with such <laughs> <laughs> with such uh, disdain? Uh, it's not the policy. It's the ideology. And so everything that we have discussed up to now, if we know who a candidate might be, right, we might see more black and brown children coming into care because of the vestiges and the and the relics of those six policies, right? Mm-hmm. Suitability, uh, mandated reporting. Uh, who do, who's more deserving? Who gets placed more? So we might see more ch- more black and brown children in care, and more white children receiving prevention services or deemed as candidates, but not actually being exposed or placed in a stranger's environment, right? And through this part of the conversation, I, I really like to call on not the race, like the disparity that's happening uh, in black and brown communities, right? Because we always look at the data from a point of, wow, black and brown children are overrepresented in our systems. I want us to think about the white advantage gap for a moment, right? Not the black disparity gap for a moment. When we think about white advantage for just a moment, as data sees it, you have, if we continue to collect data in the way we do, Janine, we're still holding whiteness as the standard because we compare all things to white-bodied individuals. The wealth gap, the health gap, right? The educational gap this proportionality gap, right? all of these things we're comparing to white bodies. I understand why, but while we're doing that, what messages are we sending, right? Mm-hmm. While we're doing that, are we examining the advantages that are baked in our system? Or are we just saying that you're not as good as white people? Like Which one? Which message are we sending? Hmm. Again, I think that there's uh, there's some nuance in language and some nuance in how we collect data and understand what it is we're looking at so we can prevent uh, affirming existing uh, beliefs about morality, humanity, and suitability. Yeah. That is a lot to contemplate, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Um, and, and all of that makes it little surprise that so many are focused on trying to bring about radical change for justice in child welfare, right? For, for example, in 2020, the Child Welfare League of America put out a special child welfare journal, double issue, entitled Poverty, Race, and Child Welfare, And an introduction to that points out that contributors tackled topics like explicitly acknowledging that social conditions and social structures leave some families more likely to come in contact with the child welfare system. 
and uh, gives a suggestion to replace child welfare practices that cause trauma and unnecessarily separate poor families and families in some racial groups with a universal approach to ensuring equity and well-being, family and community co-ownership of the child welfare system, and a redesign of laws and funding to support a just, effective child welfare system, right? So, and, and you know, you similarly, you and Ivory Bennett wrote an introduction to the National Association of Council for Children's 2023 fourth edition of Child Welfare Law and Practice titled Justice as the Throughline. And that's a powerful call to action. In one part, you wrote, we have hope for those who openly acknowledge the need for our current justice system to be abolished, not to be replicated and reformed. After all, our Declaration of Independence states our right to abolish destructive governmental systems. What would abolition look like? Ooh, well. Just a small question. Uh, yeah, a little, just just a little one, right? Uh, so, depending upon the day of the week, sometime I believe that many, many of my colleagues are of an abolitionist mindset, cross racial, right? I also believe that we have been sold a bill of goods. And I can't find it in history, Janine. I, I just can't find it as to why abolition creates such, such tension for people. Hmm. If, if we start from the positive premise that we believed that nobodied individuals should have been forced into captivity and enslaved and abolition was good in 1865, then I have no idea why it's negative today. Hmm. I mean, the word, the word itself, right? So I've noodled on uh, abolition and uh, have ebbed and flowed as to why do people feel uncomfortable about it? But then I, I quickly remember that it's not my job to try to change hearts and minds. It's my job to create spaces where truth can be told. And truth is not absolute. So it depends on how you also receive that truth. Right, Janine? It, it's not about how what I'm given or how I'm given it. It's how you receive it. So what it looks like may look different from different people based on their worldview. But I will say a couple of things about abolition in the context of child welfare in 2023. We have co-opted language from abolitionist transformation, reimagination. We've, we've stolen the language, but don't want to think about where we're going to be transformed, where we're going to be reinvented and what that might take. So a, a part of abolition looks like nurturing freedom dreams. So it's largely uh, driven by understanding what is possible, right? What is possible? The other thing is abolition is an embodied set of values, mindsets that are derived from, from organizing principles again, so that if we're talking about child welfare in 2023, so that we eradicate all elements of that institution that are proven to widen the gap between disadvantage and promise. 
That's what abolition would look like. We would actively mm. be removing all elements that are proven to cause harm. And through that, we would also be ending state and government sanctioned violence, right? Yeah. And so through abolition, we would focus a lot on the systems that cause harm, not the interpersonal things that we focus on today. Not saying that that's wrong, mm -hmm. right? Practically speaking, it would also involve an investment, right? An investment in a future, a future dream, one that has not been actualized yet. Similarly to what we saw happen in 1865, then reconstruction, and then now we might be in a third reconstruction, Jenny, if we really looked at it. And what might that mean for people? What does liberation and freedom mean for an individual? Who deserves it and who does not? Abolition, as I mentioned, is a set of principles and actions. And, you know, what it would look like is that uh, abolitionists would have a commitment to solidarity across categories and political affiliations. Abolition looks like not only restoring uh, bodies and repairing, right? So it's restoration and reparation restoration and reparation, right? It gets back to the investment. So what we what we know, Janine, and you mentioned your your age, we've talked about uh, a lot and you know just starting at 16, 19, like what people were called and how many how we're using language different now, all of those things are strategizing with with history. But it's a it's back to the investment. So what has not happened is there has not been an investment, an investment in non-white uplift, emotional investment, financial investment, political investment, right? Spiritual investment, right? Those things are not and have not been actualized. So abolition is not only uh, eliminating or extracting the, the cancerous of a structural violence, right? But it's also presencing what we know we need to invest in, which is derived out of love, right? Derived out of freedom, derived out of, you know, understanding uh, people's agency. So to glimpse it, to, to to get a little more succinct or, or uh, solid, I dare say concrete, because that might make people feel that it's a done deal, right? I <laughs> dare say that just to get a little more solid. If we were talking about child welfare abolition, you know, a glimpse of it would be repeal, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a glimpse of abolition would be repeal, repealing CAPTA and ASFA, and also to shrink uh, the function of the system so that it would uh, impact families in a totally different way, right? That, that their function, that our function in child protection as we know it today would be vastly different than the way it was designed, right? And so right now, uh, many folk who are listening today might believe that our system is broken right? We got a few bad apples or what have you, right? Mm. I think there's uh, a few bad barrels, 
indefinitely. Right. <laughs> right. Just thinking about uh, apples in Vermont and all of that. Right. I think it's, right. <laughs> but 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 at, at the same time, our system is not broken. Right. It, it's it's functioning as it was designed. And we have to uh, acknowledge that. And then the other thing is this this idea that uh, Andre Andre Gores, he, he he lifted up years ago, coined non-reformist reforms. <laughs> right. Non-reformist reforms. And I won't go into law enforcement or what have you, but we thought once upon a time that body cams would be the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a reform. Mm-hmm. We see that it ain't the thing, right? It's just not the thing, right? That's a tweak. It's making the system a, a little bit better to do exactly what it was designed to do. And child welfare is similar in that way. So abolition looks like groups of people, including the workforce, including leaders, white, non-white bodies getting together and not compromising on a vision of what it's possible, right? Mm. And so some of the reforms that we've seen over the course of the past decade and a half, uh, amazing things uh, to to the naked eye, safety decision-making, right? Safety science, right? Uh, Birth and foster parent relationships, right? There was never a policy that they shouldn't work together anyway, but it was just an unwritten rule. But now we have this big thing, Uh, Ken, supporting Ken. Well, families children have birthrights to their their parents right so some of these some of these reforms are are human entitlements right and is it is it us just catching up with the constitution or is it us really being innovative bold and creative Hmm. right and if we think safety decision making and we think birth and foster parent relationships and if we think families first and if we think better training for the workforce is the panacea and is the answer then we might not be as bold as we are because if Mm. we look if we look through if we look at abolition through the lens of constitutionality Mm. right all of these things we shouldn't even have this conversation about today Janine Mm. if we upheld the constitution we wouldn't even be having this conversation today And that's, I think, you know, at least I can speak for myself, um, when I started taking up abolition as present tense, one of the things about that for me is that has always in my lexicon been historical as a done thing. Abolition happened versus we're still in the process, right? And, And I think that that certainly raises a lot of discomfort, something that so many of us think happened and was completed is not, and we're in the process of it current day, right? So I, I, I love, I love, love, love strategizing with history to nurture freedom dreams and investing in those future dreams. I love that. That's just poetry. <laughs> it's just poetry. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we could probably talk for another week and a half and not even scratch the surface. <laughs> yes. But yes. needing to value your time and respect it, I think we should probably put a comma in it there. Um, I know that we are going to be talking again. Um, you're going to be talking uh, 
with our deputy commissioner, which is very exciting. And I think the nurturing freedom dreams is a great frame for that conversation. So um, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I can't even put my head, like wrap my head around all that you have dropped in this conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I definitely appreciate the opportunity, Janine, and uh, the the relationship that that we're nurturing, right? So uh, all kudos to you for uh, <laughs> even just leaning headfirst into this carefrontation, right? Carefrontation. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. And thank you for listening to this conversation about child welfare with justice as the through line. If you, like me, want to hear more of what Corey B. Best has to share, you're in luck. Corey will be speaking with Vermont's very own Department for Children and Families Family Services Division Deputy Commissioner, Erica Radke, later this spring. Corey and Erica will be discussing the child and family support system that we want to build here in Vermont and nationwide. You don't want to miss that conversation, so keep an ear out for more information. Corey also hosts his own podcast called Audio Nuggets. And of course, each is pure gold. You can find them all, as well as a trove of great information about Corey's and Mining for Gold's work at miningforgoldcommunity.com. And if you haven't yet listened to our November 2021 three-part miniseries, Race and Racism in Child Welfare, hosted by Tabitha Moore with special guest Dr. Ken Hardy, you definitely want to check that out. While you're there, please dive into the rest of Welcome to the Field, Seasons 1 through 3. The Social Work Lens is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house administrative production assistant, Emma Baird. For The Social Work Lens, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.